Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Pottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us today. We've got a great conversation with Sarah Carlson. Sarah is the Strategic Initiatives Director for PFI, Practical Farmers of Iowa. And well, there's just a whole litany of things she does as an agronomist, agronomic researcher, educator, writer, and just all around amazing resource for everything cover crops, small grains, integrated crop and livestock concerns, all kinds of soil health practices. The list goes on and on. Today on the podcast, she and Monty are going to dig into all these topics and so much more. So let's listen in. Welcome to this episode of the Aggie Merge podcast. I'm very excited to have with me today, Sarah Carlson with Practical Farmers Iowa. How are you doing, Sarah? Doing great. Doing great. I'm glad you could be here. One of the things we love to do is start out with your story, your why. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and you've got some family farming history and kind of who you are and and what got you to Practical Farmers of Iowa. Yeah, so I'm, you know, a generation off the farm uh, from Illinois farm family from central Illinois. I lived uh, in a small town in northern Illinois and grew up there and left that place to go off and study pre-med at Augustana College for a while and then realized, yeah, Augustana was great, but realized like I'm nervous about taking care of people. So maybe I should switch to plants. And so then I started studying biology and geography. And that took me to an internship on a farm in the middle of the woods in Vermont, where I learned that people farm much differently than central Illinois flat ground, where they needed to farm with rotation, where they needed to have livestock, because in Vermont, it's all winding, and there's small farms, and there's mountains. And so you can't get away with large equipment. So that sort of bursted my bubble of understanding about farming when I went and lived in Vermont. Um, and that was my, that was like between my senior, junior and senior year of college at Augustana. And then I, I told my mom, I was like, I think I'm going to go into the Peace Corps. And I think I really want to leave this place. I just want to completely get out of the Midwest. And I went to live in the mountains of Southern Ecuador for two and a half years. And I met farmers there that were similar to my dad, similar to my father who kind of went broke actually during the farm farm crisis, but were similar to my father in that uh, were interested in tinkering around, trying different things. There was a whole broad spectrum of types of farmers, those that were early adopters of practices and those that were laggards and didn't want to make any changes really. And I worked with all of them. Um, so after the Peace Corps, then I came back and thought like, I better like learn agriculture. Maybe I should study some agriculture. So I went to Iowa State and got my master's in agronomy and sustainable, sustainable agriculture. And I learned there that most of land grant universities think that only corn and soybeans know how to do photosynthesis, that other crops maybe can't. And I remember raising my hand in one of my 
production classes and saying like, are we going to learn about C3 photosynthesis of grasses, which would be like rice or wheat, like what the world eats? And the response was, well, mostly we just learn about C4 photosynthesis, which is corn and C3 leguminous photosynthesis, which is for soybeans. So I sort of understood my place uh, in the belly of the beast at Iowa State right in that moment. So then after Iowa State, then I uh, went and found, I found practical farmers. I had done some on-farm research with some of the members uh, during my master's program and then took on a full-time staff position in 2008, I think it was. Wow. So that's where I'm at today. Fantastic. That is awesome. So I guess I didn't know you're an Augustana grad also. I'd forgotten that. So I guess there's, there's two Augustana grads uh, making an impact in agriculture now at least. So yeah, that's awesome. And uh, you definitely got to see a different part of the world living in Ecuador. And now is, uh, is that how mechanized is the agriculture there? Well, I got to see like the, yeah. So I got to see actually the change. So the farm that was around the little house that I lived in, had been uh, turned over with oxen the two seasons that I was there. And then the third season that I was there, there was a person in town who'd worked on the coast and had saved a bunch of money and bought a tractor. And I saw them that land get turned over with tillage through a tractor. And, you know, the oxen with this family took two days to turn over this, this property basically. And then that tractor did it in like a half an hour. Uh, and I watched that it was crazy i was like oh i'm seeing the industrial like the agricultural revolution right here yeah but but then i realized like then now now that we don't need the oxen we don't need to feed the oxen and so that's essentially why we don't have small grains and diverse rotation like on the iowa crop ground and illinois crop ground anymore because we're not feeding those tractors anymore uh, because they're you know fed by fuel yeah so i i saw it it was crazy yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting. And then the other thing that's just interesting too, is the revolutions happening in that area is going from many times in rural areas, no communication abilities to skip right fast forward to cell phones. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, no landlines or anything. They just go right to cell phones. It's, it's fascinating to see how quick that technology can get changed and adopted. I, I heard someone at ag tech conference once tell me that roughly a third of the world's corn is still planted by hand just oh hard yeah to imagine and he had developed a tool to help a farmer more accurately precisely plant it uh so they could get better yields to have more than just a sustenance living you know have, have mm. improve their uh but anyway uh, that's that's a fascinating experience and uh uh i bet you'd highly recommend that to anyone to go to that yeah i mean oh, especially right. yeah young people it's good because it makes you grow up really quickly um, but for older folks that like know stuff <laughs> and actually are more mature and can handle, you know, being patient, uh, without having technology, for example, for two and a half years, um, I'd say that, you know, you're always going to learn more than you're ever going to bestow on anybody else for sure. So it's, it's just always a good experience. It's extremely humbling. Um, and you know, I just have a lot more empathy for people now I feel in general. Yeah, well, that's great. That's great. So 2008, you came to Practical Farmers of Iowa, and a lot has changed there since 2008. Um, talk to us about the Practical Farmers of Iowa journey, both your journey with them and just how the organization has really exponentially grown over that period of time. 
Yeah. So PFI got started by, you know, a central Iowa farmer, Dick Thompson, back during the 80s farm crisis, where he said, you know, maybe the university isn't creating all of the research that I need to make better decisions on my farm to stay profitable, which would include maybe cutting nitrogen rates or not putting on all the herbicides that the universities are telling me that I need to. So I should do on-farm research, and then I should talk about that on-farm research with my neighbors. I should set up the on-farm research, though, in rigorous, you know, systems so that I can really know if my treatments are having an effect, you know, negatively or positively. And then I should talk about the good and the bad, but I should definitely, and this is a key phrase of Dick, I should get along with my neighbors, but I shouldn't go along with what my neighbors are saying, because then maybe we're all getting a D uh, in the class if I'm just copying. So, you know, Dick's mindset uh, really carries through today with the organization where, you know, I started there in 2008 and I'd say like right around that time, the cover crop craze was just starting to happen in this part of the Corn Belt. So it sort of taken off, you know, out east because of uh, the Chesapeake Bay demand for clean water and pushing cover crops and and compensating cover crops really well through the flush tax. Um, and then that had, you know, kind of jumped to Indiana and Indiana was really leading, but Iowa and Illinois even weren't really doing much. And I sort of saw this happening and I was like, we should jump on that. Like we should figure out how at PFI, we already know about cover crops. How can our organization take advantage of the desires of farmers out, you know, east to teach us about how to do cover crops more and how to meet corn soybean farmers more where they were at with thinking about making changes. And so Practical Farmers members, I'd say from the 80s to about the early 2000s, a lot of our corn soybean hog farmers had transitioned to organic because that was a more lucrative market and allowed them to do um, maybe more right by the land, by lower inputs, less uh, cost of fertilizers and and inputs because they didn't have to use them. Now, yes, of course, they had to use tillage. um, And we can have like a tillage discussion another time. I'm like really agnostic to tillage. As long as there's continuous living cover, we, we can actually overcome a lot of the the bad parts of tillage, uh, but our short rotations can't tolerate it. That's a side note. Anyway, so so then I, I saw like these changes happening in Indiana and I was like, well, we can do that. Let's talk about cover crops. And I remember one of my first cover crop meetings at Iowa State, uh, Dick showed up and he sort of just sat there and he didn't say anything. And then afterwards he's like, you know, I think we know these things already about cover crops. You should make sure you talk about this. Um, but like in the meeting, he didn't he didn't like show off or anything. He wanted to have other farmers like sit and think about it, sit and think about trying new practices. So because we were able to leverage all that momentum for cover crops and because like other parts of the ag supply chain sort of started paying attention more to soil health, it seemed like uh, other organizations, I should say, in the commodity groups have seemed to start now paying attention more in that 2009 to 2010 time, maybe because they thought there'd be regulation. Um, I think people didn't stand in our way or say like, oh, that's crazy, you know, or at least there was less people saying that's crazy. There was more people saying like, hmm, you know, maybe there is something with the soil health thing, or maybe there is something with this cover crop thing. And so because we sort of leveraged that momentum and that train, there was a lot of funding available out in the grant sphere to apply for foundations uh, were looking to invest in water quality improving practices. The states were getting organized through the Gulf Hypoxic Zone Task Force, and Iowa had to let on that. Uh, Secretary, former Secretary Bill Northey had really let on that. 
Um, and he had been a PFI member uh, before he took that position, before he was elected to that position. So it was kind of easy for PFI to, to just think about like something that we should, we should do, we should, you know, move towards. And it's paid us back in a lot of dividends. Like we have a larger membership because of it. We have a lot more funding because of it. We have a lot more work because of it. Um, but it's really changed. Like, I think even who we are, like to ourselves, you know, we're really like meeting more corn and soybean farmers where they're at than ever before. And then helping them on this journey to just diversify control costs a lot more and hopefully stay farming, you know, into the future. And I think uh, it's interesting to see, like you talked about a lot of this started in a Chesapeake Bay watershed. And then, then you had the group, the conservation innovation network, or I forget the exact name in Indiana, but they were, very, very adamant. And then, you know, PFI and Iowa intersected, like you said, just at the right time. And you mentioned that a lot of it was regulation-based. And I think that's part of what the problem was with the initiatives here in Illinois, is we were really looking at uh, tile water, um, nutrients, and nutrient runoff standards, and, and trying to come up with those practices from that perspective, instead of practices for the entire farmer's need. Is that, is that, mm. and, and, and I just, it just kind of fell flat. It didn't, you know, the, the things that we've come up with is these big, you know, wood chip, um, <laughs> bioreactors, bioreactors on the end of tile lines. And it's like, well, it works fine, except for when we get high flow rates and it just bypasses it anyway. Well, the problem <laughs> you have is when you have fl high flow rates. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I think, uh, Iowa and Indiana smoked us on, on this and it, it, I haven't really seen that kind of grassroots organized effort in uh, in Illinois come up, but I noticed some logos changing there, PFI instead of Practical Farmers of Iowa. So, you know, maybe we can come in under your umbrella a little bit, you know. So I think, uh, you know, that your organization, how you have farmers working together and sharing that information is, is really, really great. Um, have... How much, how many of your farmers were involved with the soil health partnership plots and, and, and those kind of things? And that was kind of similar modeled off of what you'd done in the past, correct? Yeah, it was, it was absolutely, um, well, it's a shame that the soil health partnership, uh, organization folded. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly why that occurred, but that's probably for another discussion, but yeah, the design of setting up trials that are rigorously organized, uh, similar to like Iowa Soybean Association mm -hmm. has similar trials to this. I think even there's a group in Ohio that has some uh, paired comparison trials so that farmers can learn on their farm through on-farm research, you know, what, what it is the treatment is telling them. So the SHP plots, farmers in our network, uh, we had some, I think that were like core PFI farmers that had SHP plots and then others, you know, who I know, I like, I know those farmers, but I don't think they were active PFI members. Um, and then I know some of the, some of those SHP farmers plots now in, in Illinois and in Iowa, we are going to try to work into some of our long-term trials, you know, add them to our data sets. Um, and then others, Iowa corn and Iowa soybean are trying to sort of take those over and subsume them so that, you know, long-term plots are so important to have because that's when we really see the difference. So like we did this 
we tacked on this study on top of a 10 year long term uh, cover crop, no cover crop plots that we had in the state. We tacked on this weed seed evaluation to see in the cover crop strips versus the no cover crop strips across four locations where cover crops have been in place every fall for 10 years. We wanted to see what was what were the weed seeds, because that would show like long term potential changes um, from the use of cover crops. And so we saw 60% less water hemp seeds in the cover crop plots, which frankly shocks me because water hemp is germinating months after cover crops are dead in a corn soybean system. But what we think is happening is that because the cover crop is fighting the water hemp and keeping it small, the herbicides work better. So then we have less weed escapes and then therefore less weed seeds long-term, but we would have never known that if we didn't have those long-term plots. So that's where like those soil health partnership plots are really important. If we can keep them in place, right. We can collect data off of them in five years when we come up with a new question, you know, for something we need to know. Well, it's our intention on our farm to continue the SHP plots. Uh, great. So if we can work with you, great. Otherwise yes. continue the sampling protocol and keep consistent labs. So, so that we can, you know, get that information over time. And the other thing we want to do, too, is go a little bit wilder. You know, I think a lot of the cover crops are being terminated at three to six inches, and it's just not enough time to create enough biomass, and they're, you know, they're, a lot of them are uh, single species and those kind of things. So we want to make sure we're doing high, high species, put in some wheat rotations, put in some cattle rotations, yeah, and see what we can do to kind of kind of vet those things out and what those things are doing. But back to your weed comment, that's really interesting, Sarah, because I think, yeah, like you said, part of it is, is it's stunted. You have better chemical control. But another thing I've had a conversation with with some chemical suppliers is the fact that farmers are doing a better job of burn down because, you know, yeah. they kind of put it off a little bit and now nah, I can get it later. But when they got the cover crop out there, like, ooh, you know, I don't want that competing. So their their termination dates are, are much better. And I think we're we're killing it smaller, too. So I think it's part quorum sensing part better management but it it's definitely happens it uh, the weed the weed component of this is uh, probably one of the biggest surprises to cover crops so is that pretty common amongst your farmers yeah i weed control yeah and i think like it actually substantiates your comment about illinois focusing on tile lines only and how like that's not very exciting to farmers. Well, okay. Tile is very exciting for its drainage appeal, right? And it improves like the land value, but for agronomic production, the farmer, the sale to the farmer would probably be more about weed control. How can cover crops improve weed control or how can no-till systems help us improve weed control? So yeah, I, you know, 12 years ago or so, and we started down this journey and I came onto PFI and I knew nothing about cover crops before I got started at PFI. I, didn't even think about weeds. I wasn't, you know, thinking about it. And then when we realized like six years into it, we had better weed control. We had stuff going on with mare's tail that was different. I was like, hmm, well, that's interesting. And then we could just tack this study on and like to address water hemp. I never would have thought that. So I, I remember saying to a, com- a couple of chemical companies like two or three years ago, I was like, look, what if we can keep your chemicals on the shelf longer? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to support the chemistry, the chemical industry, but like, if you've already taken the time to do R and D on this chemical and we're already using it, shouldn't we just steward it better? And then we'll have it longer. And then we won't have to introduce like 
worse chemicals like dicamba, for example, that cause all these offsite the offsite uh, damages. Well, like, let's just steward Roundup podcast now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so like you know, and they're like, well, we can't imagine like selling less of the herbicide in the short term, so that in the long term we sell more of it. And I was like, well, then you tell me where you're going to find new chemistries. I mean. There aren't any new chemistries. So you need different modes of action and cover crops can be one of them. Mm-hmm. Or, <sighs> or it's a tank mix, essentially. You know, it's, if you think of it that way, a tank mix partnered where you have multiple modes of action yes. within, within the same field. So, yeah, um, no, very, very interesting. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now, back to our show. I think that... Um, so these, these studies that you're doing with practical farmers of Iowa, they're on the website. Uh, farmers can come in and see those, uh, can, do they need to be a member? How does that work? Sarah is all that information that's shared in there. Um, how, how do farmers access that? Yeah. So everything's free and open to the public. You can attend meetings without being a member. You can read our research without being a member to conduct an on-farm trial. You need to be a member because we're going to compensate you. Uh, to host a field day, you would need to be a member because we're going to also compensate. So we pay farmers to do to do field days or to be going to speaking events or to do research. We compensate for farmers' time because we know it takes time. Um, but we're kind of like a church, you know, like you can show up to church and listen to the sermon and choose to tithe or not tithe. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what we are. And folks can peruse the website, read research reports for free, watch webinars for free, um, and basically attend for free. And then if you want to support our mission, we would love to have your membership dues, which is not very expensive, 40 bucks a year, like so cheap. So how do you get the revenue you need to support you, your staff and all this research and all the fantastic things you're doing? Yeah, because clearly forty dollars and forty five hundred members isn't gonna cut it. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean when I started, I think our budget was like four hundred thousand dollars and we had like six or seven staff. Uh, and that was thirteen years ago. And now our budget's close to four million and we have like thirty staff, I think, thirty ish full time staff. So we have uh, around I think we're at like fifty five funding sources right now. My team alone is in charge of 31 funding sources and 12 of those is privately funded through supply chain companies that want to fund us to help them deploy cover crops across the Corn Belt. It's not just Iowa. We have projects in most of the I states um, and Minnesota and Wisconsin and Nebraska. And then we have uh, some core funding from the Walton Family Foundation. My team especially does because the Walton Family Foundation, who is, you know, the Walmart family, they really uh, want to improve the water quality in the Mississippi River. And so cover crops obviously are one of the key ways to do that. So they funded us for as long as I've been at PFI, they've been funding us. And then we've been successful writing grants. So we have like quite a few USDA federal funding sources uh, that help us pay for farmers to grow small grains with, with uh, 
with legume cover crops because that's not used a lot, but we really need diversification. So we need oats out there. Um, and we have a new project where we're trying to get hog manure to be applied on the summer covers. So plant oats, you know, put out 40 acres every 20,000 hogs. So you have like a spot for manure in case the building might overflow before soybean harvest. So you can put the manure on in the summertime onto a cover crop, spend more time injecting it and stewarding it better and just relieve any pressure and any potential damage the hog manure might cause. So we have some funding for that. So we have a smattering of USDA state and foundation funding and then private money for the, the cost shares. Yeah, that's interesting. So go through, I mean, there's, you know, you mentioned a few of them there, but walk, walk us through all the different uh, areas that you guys are focusing on. I know there's those things and then you, you got your whole uh, integrated livestock portion of it. And, and like you said, the small grains program with ADM, what, what are some of the, some of the keystone projects you've got going on right now? Yeah. So I'd say like the biggest one, um, around cover crops. So really my team's focus is all integrated crop and livestock cover crops, small grains, grazing, either grazing cover crops or taking that cover crop for silage or perennial managed intensive grazing systems or indoor hog production, for example, or poultry systems indoors or outdoors. So my whole team works on all of those pieces um, within PFI. And then at PFI, we also have like beginning farmer programming. We are moving into more programming in Spanish to help any beginning farmers that primary language is Spanish, help them get started. Uh, we also have horticulture programming um, and landowner programming. So those are some of the key programs that we have that are outside of my team's work. But the big stuff that my team is working on, um, we work a bunch with Pepsi and the Unilever company. And Unilever owns like Ben & Jerry's, Hellman's, Mayonnaise. They own Dove. They own a lot of different brands. Uh, I don't know if you remember like the Hellman's commercial during the Super Bowl, like Super Bowl, like taste, not waste, you know, like make stuff and cover it in Hellman's mayonnaise and don't throw out food waste basically. So Hellman's wants to push a brand that is like, really think about brands that are better. So they have like cage-free eggs that are mostly eggs sourced out of Iowa that have pushed those systems now to be cage-free. Um, and then soybean oil is a big component of Hellman's mayonnaise and the soybeans that are grown in the central part of Iowa all go into Hellman's mayonnaise. All of Hellman's oil is extruded out of an ADM facility in central Iowa. And so the soybeans in that circle in that hundred mile radius around Des Moines, uh, those farmers are eligible for a cover crop cost share and we admin that program. So like last year, for example, a third of Hellman's mayonnaise, U.S. Hellman's mayonnaise came from soybeans that touched cover crops because those farmers were in our programs. It's actually a lot of soybeans and I track all of them because uh, Hellman's is very rigorous. Uh, and then Pepsi, for example, high fructose corn syrup, uh, you know, makes Pepsi and also some different like chips, Fritos, things like that are made out of corn. And so we have like, I think seven projects right now that Pepsi's funding and then their partner, either Cargill or ADM or whoever the merchandiser is, Lifeline is another one. They'll also uh, do some of the recruitment to get farmers that sell to those locations, get those farmers into the cost share in those companies. And I will like do field days together or talk about cover crops together with their, their companies. So we have a lot of supply chain companies that want to do these programs because then they report the greenhouse gas emissions reductions that they find from cover crops in the system. 
those are our biggest. Like last year alone, those I got those companies to spend a million dollars on cover crops. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, awesome. it's like a sense. rounding error to them. But to me, I was like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a heck of a rounding error to have. And uh, I, I'm uh, that's amazing to think. So and those incentives that range from how, mu- how much an acre in incentives, and I'm sure it varies by crop and location and program. But yeah, uh, 30 or. Yeah. So the majority of our cover crop ones are at $10 an acre because the companies are cool with letting farmers um, like stack, you know, with other, with other cost share programs. So we, we didn't want to limit that. So that's why we sort of, we placed that at a $10 range. And then like our small grains cost share, that's at $25 an acre because we're going to grow small grains plus the legume cover crop and those legume cover crops can be a bit more expensive. Mm -hmm. So the cost shares don't cover everything, right? They don't cover the entire cost of doing the practice, but they do, um, you know, they do hopefully help uh, create an incentive for change. And then this fall, we're going to deploy two fertilizer reductions, which it seems silly to me that I'd have to pay farmers to cut fertilizer, but you know, we might, lose some corn yield. So I got to make sure that I can offset that uh, and just help farmers dial it in a bit. Like no. we're really over applying nitrogen. Oh yeah. <laughs> is, uh, is that fertilizer reduction related to their previous year's practice or is it related to the uh, recommendations coming from the university? So for one of the programs, if they followed a legume cover crop in a small grain rotation, then we will coach them on like, what size is that red clover? Are you going to till it under? Are you going to kill it with an herbicide? So we can help with, you know, predicting nitrogen synchronization and total amount of N. So that recommendation will be closer to like our agronomist giving that recommendation. Cause frankly, the universities don't, don't really know this very well. And we've pulled together like all of the university research because like all the legume agronomists are spread out. They're not all like at one university. Right. There's great agronomists at Davis, great agronomists at Michigan. There's some great ones at Iowa State. And so we've like combined all of that data to give recommendations on the rates after a legume cover crop. That's a big one, right? Like after small grains, not in a corn bean rotation. And then for the other nitrogen fertilizer reduction program, which is tied really to just fall cover crops in a corn bean rotation, if a farmer's used it, used cover crops for like five plus years, then we'll say like, okay, start cutting 10%. We'll give you five bucks for every 10% you cut and probably not go over more than like 30% reduction. Cause in a two-year system, you know, we're probably not, we're just basically reducing loss. We're not like, we're not adding a lot of nitrogen. So we don't want to, we don't want to go down like past 140 pounds, um, but we have a lot of farmers applying like 250 pounds of nitrogen. Yeah. And on some soils, you know, 220 is probably the the height that we really should go. So there's room for cutting. Oh yeah, there is. So yeah, I was just wondering, you know, when you compare farmers that maybe are at the 250 now versus farmers that are already at the 150, you know, what kind of incentives are there? It's, you know, in general, when you, you look at some of the carbon credit programs or in this nutrient when you have a farmer who's already doing 60%, you know, 150 pound regimen or already been, you know, no-till and cover crops for 15 years, you know, then when they, then when they come along, it's like, well, we're not going to give you anything because you're already doing it. Right. <laughs> you know, versus, 
It's too bad it can't be related to what the what the standard is, right? Right. But I, I don't. I see what they're trying to accomplish, but it's almost somewhat penalizes people who have been doing the right thing for a while. But I, I don't know. I mean, they they are more profitable in the end, <laughs> putting on sixty percent of the nitrogen. But what's your right? On that? Well, yeah. I mean, the additionality piece. So. So I struggle a bit with, with only thinking about carbon sequestration. Like there is so much we could tackle with just emissions reduction, which also saves us money that I really think uh, any farmer should be benefited by adding cover crops or continuing to use cover crops in their system, because then they have a bigger chance of cutting nitrogen over time. And so like we can really tackle emissions probably till the cows come home because there's such a perverse incentive to continue to put on high rates of nitrogen in the system, unless the price goes up like it did right now. Like the price going up actually is the best incentive we have to really control our emissions. Um, so, you know, the companies are all thinking we're gonna get there with sequestration. I'm a little worried about that when we actually pull soil samples, if we will have sequestration in an annual cropping system, mm -hmm. because we probably actually need perennials and trees to get carbon at depth. But that aside, I feel like we can tackle emissions every single year. And so if cover crops or helping farmers reduce tillage or helping farmers mess around with fertilizer, you know, incentivizes them to continue to do that every year, we should be paying on that because it's avoided emissions. You know, otherwise they would have put on 250 units if he hadn't paid him not to do it. So like, I think that additionality a, thinking drives me crazy. <laughs> that is a, that is a great, great point because so by emissions, you're referring to nitrous oxide uh, coming out, which a greenhouse gas from over application or poor water management, we're denitrifying and, and release into the atmosphere 283 times worse than carbon dioxide itself. The other thing is, is yes, good job. Hey. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember numbers, but remember names. Uh, anyway, um, the other thing is, is you look at the immediate water quality advantages. You know, well, surface water and ground. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, like you said, the lack of emissions, and also it's a big thing, especially in the western states and in California, where we have a lot of uh, work, is the dust emissions. So where we oh. have particulate matter problems, you know, in, in poor air quality areas by reducing tillage and having cover crops so that when we do get winds across the surface, you know, we're, we're not, you know, um, putting those fine particles in the air. So, yeah, it, it's, um, you're right. It's too bad that those, there is a, there is a reason to, to compensate for those things without having to do more, which, which is what additionality is. Right. Yeah. I mean, just like an hour uh, east of where your farm is, I think two years ago or so, like there was a super bad accident because of spring tillage that had occurred and we were dry. And then there was a lot of wind and there was like really bad accidents mm -hmm. in like central Illinois. Well, like, you know, we wouldn't have to have that if we had had cover crops on the ground. Mm -hmm. So, I, so I love, I love your slogan. You know, don't farm naked. <laughs> Use cover. Yeah. I, I think that's great. You know, I, I add to it. Nobody wants to see your dirt. So. <laughs> but 
Well, that's uh, and and I did get thanks to PFI. I did get a uh, cover crop mask that I could wear in the airports that said "Don't farm naked." So it did turn ahead or two as I was flying around the country. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's a conversation starter. That's for sure. <laughs> but okay, so you know these are the great things that that are going on right now. What what is driving? these brands to reach through their supply chain so far back to the customer, not so much an an organic standard where they want to know what inputs were used with it. Not so much a, you know, cleanliness, mycotoxin, all those kind of testable things. Now we're looking at the cultural practices. This is really kind of the first reach back through to cultural practices. What's driving that? Yeah, I, a lot of it started with Walmart's Project Gigaton announcement that they had, gosh, ooh, eight years ago, I think it was, mm-hmm. where companies that want to put their products on Walmart's shelves uh, were sort of all brought together in a meeting. I think it was a public meeting. It wasn't like closed doors or anything. And and Walmart said, look, we got to clean up uh, the greenhouse gas emissions in our supply chain because we've got to address climate change. We, we, we predict that we'll have some supply disruptions. And so they initiated Project Gigaton a while ago where they wanted companies to find ways to cut GHG emissions in their supply chain. And so a lot of, a lot of the companies are trying to figure out like how to do that. So, you know, General Mills is taking like an educational approach. Um, Tyson's and some of the other protein companies are taking like an ag retailer approach where they're partnering up with ag retailers, Unilever, Pepsi, Cargill ADM, some of the ones that we work with are taking like a cost share approach. Mm-hmm. So, so Terra is taking sort of like a data collection ag retailer approach as well. Um, and they're all trying to, you know, see if in the end they can basically co- make these com- make good on these commitments that they're making to reduce GHGs in their supply chain. But I've seen recently, so they're, they're still all committed to that. But recently, now we've seen Walmart talk more about regenerative ag commitments. Mm-hmm. You know, we want diverse rotation and we want to cut GHGs. We don't like only want to only want to deal with um GHG climate reductions, for example. Mm -hmm. No, it's interesting. And I, you know, I think it's because their consumers want it too. I mean, they've, they've done focus testing on those things. And and I really think that they want to uh, appeal to the consumers because consumers vote and they vote with their dollars. And if they're going to vote for those brands that they, that they know and trust. So it's interesting to see how the, you know, the, the grill in the room, Walmart with such large market share has, has really had that kind of an impact. So it's pretty fascinating. I was going to, the other thing is uh, that I know you're starting to work with a little bit too, is as we move further down the line, we have more and more farmers cash renting ground or maybe crop sharing, but majority is cash rent and there's less land ownership. So there's that um, have to have to make the pills pay this year you know, every year. And then the other thing is, is you have landlords that maybe, um, the, the, I think it was once said, and maybe I heard it from someone on your team, but a large majority are, are widows that own the land that the the husband maybe used to farm it. He's since passed away. He rent, they rent it out. They don't really know anything other than what their husband did for years and years or what granddad did for years and years. Uh, so they don't have a, a, a way to know what to ask for their tenants to do in soil health principles. And I think you've identified that. How, 
how is uh, Practical Farmers uh, helping landlords understand soil health and what that means? And, and uh, you know, it's okay to have a field that's not perfectly black, you know, and tilled. And it's, it's okay to, you know, maybe it's worth uh, a few less dollars to have a farm that we can still be farming 30, 40 years from now. Talk, talk to us about how you're trying to address those issues. I feel like I went through this personally with my grandparents' farm where my mom, uh, who was managing the books, she's like, well, we're going to put in tile next year because the tenant says we need a lot more tile. And I was like, really? So do we know if those tiles are fully functioning? Because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of compaction in our central Illinois fully tilled soils. I think we need cover crops to get the water to the tile. She's like, hmm. Well, that's interesting, but it took like four years for me to even get our family to use cover crops. And my mom's like a generation off the farm and, you know, believed the tenant and, and he wasn't like against cover crops. He just sort of needed somebody to ask him if he'd be willing to do it. And then my mom sort of got up the guts to do it. She's like, so, you know, tenant, would you be interested in trying cover crops? And he's like, yeah, you know, I've been kind of thinking about this cover crops thing. I should give it a shot. And my mom's like, we'll pay for it. Sarah will organize it. You know, you won't have to do anything. Just plant into it, plant green. Um, we'll pick fields that are going to soybeans because that's the easiest place to get started. So I think about like that conversation with my family where I like, I'm kind of an expert in this, in this game. And there's plenty of farm families that don't have me on, as their daughter. And I think like how tough it was for me to get my mom who was in charge, the POA of the farm to make a change that I'm like, it's impossible to assume anybody's going to be able to get this to happen without like the right incentives or the right support structure, because like, it's kind of hard. And the tenant says one thing and they're a nice guy and they plow the driveway for me in the wintertime. So I don't want to shake up any, you know, issues. I don't want to have any hard feelings with this person that I depend on. So we have tried to tackle this. Um, you know, I can see, I can see like with satellite imagery where we have cover crops is like the exact opposite of our like ownership maps that Iowa state collects annually. So Iowa state annually does a survey of land that is cash rented versus owner operated. And where we have high percentages of counties that are cash rented, we have much lower adoption rates of cover crops. And it's the same, even in Illinois, like where I'm from in Northern Illinois, we have really high cash rent and a lot of pressure for development. And, you know, we have like barely any cover crops in Northern Illinois, except for where we have rolling ground, but where we have flat black, you know, it's really hard to see it. So ownership's really important. Um, and it's really hard. So some of the things we, we do a lot of programming. I have sat on the phone quite a bit with women landlords. Um, we try to elevate women landlords who are having an impact and have good tenant relationships, you know, help them get on social media, help them tell their story, help them do an education peer to peer approach. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to put something into the tax code. I think we're going to, we're going to need to have the bankers and the accountants saying to a landowner, Hey, you're leaving, you're leaving some money on the table here. Cause you didn't do cover crops this past fall. Do you want to do cover crops? Right? Like, here's five bucks off your property tax or whatever. Cause I don't see, I don't see another way to get, you know, mass adoption since 60% of the land is owned by somebody not farming it. And in Iowa, 80% of land is owned debt-free. 
Mm-hmm. So if we're not doing it now, when we don't need to love, when we don't need to service debt on it, we ain't going to do it. Yep. <laughs> That's a great, great point. Uh, there has been some movement though in crop insurance um, where in the very beginning, you know, way back at the, the beginning of all this madness, you know, you kind of had to be a little careful with the green planting and, and everything else, because that was a no, no, you had to be, you know, terminated so far ahead of planting date and, and those kind of things. So that's backed off a little bit. Plus uh, the crop insurance people have seen that there's some resilience and, and less claims associated when there are cover crops, you know, they're not just willy nilly giving out extra money because of cover crops. I think part of it's USDA funded, but they're also, I think, you know, actuarially seeing some differences. So isn't that changing over time? That disincentive that we used to have to with crop insurance to not do cover crops is, is really exhausted. And if anything, now it, I think it's a $5 credit for using cover crops on your crop insurance premium. If I'm that could vary by the location, but I, I think that's what it is, isn't it? Yeah. So I'd say, I'd say crop insurance wise, we have a lot more flexibility than we did, you know, in 2013 and before sort of when we started doing it more here in the I States. Um, And then, you know, Iowa launched in 2017, our state funded crop insurance premium discount. That's five bucks off an acre of cover crops Mm -hmm. to sort of say to the feds, like, Hey, we can do this. Uh, crop insurance agents will promote this program and everything will be fine. And nobody's going to stop growing corn and soybeans. Like everything will be okay. Why didn't you let us do this like federally? Cause that's really where it needs to change. Mm-hmm. And then Illinois, like in two years, they started their program. Indiana started a program this year. And I know Wisconsin's debating on a program. And then out of the blue, uh, two or three months ago, the Biden administration was like, let's pay cover crops uh, from crop insurance premium discounts across the United States. And then that really forced farmers to sign up and verify cover crops that they planted last fall, Mm -hmm. which is good. So we can see like actually how many acres are out there because we don't really know our total numbers uh, annually. We only know them every five years in the census of ag data. But to your point, yeah, I'd say crop insurance agents are less nervous about cover crops when they have a a farmer using cover crops for sure east of the Missouri I'd say west of the Missouri like west of Nebraska into the drier areas Mm -hmm. we still have some work to do we still have farmers saying they're getting uh, booted out and not getting coverage when they have even just a short cover crop that is actually reducing evaporation that would happen from the soil surface normally. So it's kind of a, it's kind of annoying that the science is not being paid attention to. But, but the other the other real change that needs to happen is farmers need to be farmers that use cover crops need to be given the crop insurance premium discounts. Where today farmers just because you grow corn and soybeans get the premium discounts and you don't have to do anything special. So we don't need more subsidies for corn and soybeans. We need subsidies for soil health systems because they're a cost and they don't have an immediate return. And that's really where crop insurance could really change the game is if we had that good driver discount tied to crop insurance. <laughs> good driver discount. I like it. Maybe they need to put the tr- the little tracker thing in their, uh, plug it in their tractors and see. So that, that's a, that's a good idea. And, and like you said, 
you know, at the same time, I, I get pushed back in, in western half of Kansas, Nebraska on the cover crops, like you're saying, because don't waste waste water. There's some great science out there about how it doesn't if you don't let it go to jungle. But those same guys that are talking about that are also the ones that have the three-foot-tall Roundup-resistant kosher growing in their fallow year in their fields because they're not taking care of it. <laughs> and then they come through with a sweet plow to take it out. So, Wait, Where do you think yeah. that water's going? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, you know, we just couldn't get to it, but gosh, we're not going to plant the cover crops, you know? So anyway, uh, it's all this little distance between our ears, isn't it? You know, it's really uh, in, the, in the business of changing minds. What have you found, you know, talk about some of the events you've got coming up. You got a, a ton of things on the website where I was looking at, but all those events are really designed at helping people change your thought process, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's all about just stimulating curiosity. I think if we all just like thought about what we're doing and just had some curiosity, like, hmm, what if I did this just a little bit differently? Then you'll go down a rabbit hole and then eventually test some things out and make changes. And I think everybody is everybody can can have curiosity. It whether you don't own the land, whether you're like in debt whether you're working an off-farm job or whether you are like a 10,000 acre farmer owner operator, all of those different systems really can just try one thing, even just start thinking about it, whether you actually test it out, but obviously it's more fun to test it out. So, you know, all, all of our, all of our programming is all about stimulating curiosity and just getting farmers to talk to each other and landowners to talk to each other and whoever the peers are to talk to each other to like, test and noodle something and think about ways to change because you know if we just keep implementing the recipes we've always been implementing you know that's the definition of being crazy like assuming we're going to get changes like we're not (laughs) so we've got to try something else here we got a water quality problem then we probably got to try something that's going to help address that yeah not not blame the person that reported the problem fix yeah. the problem. So I, uh, I love that stimulating curiosity to create noodling. I, that, that, is, <laughs> that, is, that is the quote right there. I love it though. I, I, you know, and when farmers tried a few things on their own to see what's going to happen, they're going to, they're going to build it best to fit their own production system. And right. constantly, you've probably heard this. I've heard it. When we start working with farmers, um, on their soil health journey, they say, you know what, instead of this, this boring recipe thing that we've been following for the past so many years, you've made farming fun again. And Absolutely. There's this artwork in, inside of a farmer or this, this uh, desire to grow right, and be better. And it just makes it fun when we can you know, throw the playbook away and, and try a new playbook on a portion of the uh, sandbox, a portion of the farm, if you will. So, nope, that's great. Now, let me ask you this, Sarah, before retirement, tell me what, tell me what the land is going to look like. What's your vision? For before I retire? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me the impact that Sarah is going to have oh. here in retirement. Yeah. Well, just so you know, my mom is 73 and still sells real estate in Illinois. So I'm probably not going to retire like in the next 20 years. I'm probably going to work until I die. So before I die, <laughs> uh, Yeah. So most days I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll have every other acre in cover crops. That's my vision, right? Is that every other acre is in cover crops. Um, 
because I, I, I think there'll always be limitations. There'll always be like weather limitations. I have a feeling we're still going to be on the track of greater consolidation. And so we'll just have less ability to get over the land that, that we're managing because we'll have the drive to greater consolidation, unfortunately. So given that, I don't think we'll probably be able to get out more than every other acre uh, in continuous living cover. So, you know, that's a real small step. I think that's doable. I think, I think we actually could achieve that. What my vision and what I would want, right, is farmers making a good living from 300 acres, integrated crop and livestock systems, lots more kids in church pews and on school buses. That's what I want. But I don't see much change in the ag place to break up consolidation that is actually the root cause of the system we have today to bring us back to 300 acres. Oh, okay. 500 acres. Fine. <laughs> we could go back to 500 acres, but um, you know, I have a feeling we're going to have to have 3000 acre farms to make a living. And, th and that's not good for rural communities. We need more people per acre. So my vision is that with integrated crop and livestock systems, we can make it in the corn belt on 500 acres. And then, you know, out West or in other geographies where you can have higher value crops, right? Maybe you make it on 80 acres and there's just a lot more people in rural places. That would be my vision. That's what I would hope for. That's interesting. That's a great vision to have. And, um, it's, it's definitely worthwhile. The every other acre and the consolidation thing, I think as we, as we consolidate, there is that problem of getting to more and more of the recipe because you're absolutely moved from the farm. It, it's hard to manage 25,000 acres as well as somebody who can manage a thousand acres just because of your time per acre. Right. Our hope is some technologies uh, coming uh, that will make us actually better unbiased managers at 25,000 acres than we were at 500 acres. You know, if, they inter if we can get good sensing technologies and artificial intelligence to where we take out the ego, I think um, there's hope there, you know, to where if the, if, if the uh, artificial intelligence solves for 100% of the acres needs to be cover crops, then, then that's, uh, that's what that is. So, but I think, you know, between now and then that, the consolidation, I agree with you, that, that's a challenge. And, and it's market driven, right? You know, it's uh, because the cost of assets and, and, and the lower and lower margins over time causes the consolidation. So, yeah, but uh, I think uh, that's a, right. That's a great, great and the current system is the current system is untouchable. Correct. Yeah. And the current system, sadly, the current system is untouchable. So, you know, we, we, we nobody would farm the way they farm today if crop insurance didn't continue to say, oh, it's okay. You know, go ahead and go ahead and plant those soybeans April 5. It's just fine. You know, so so we have to, you know, we sort of I think even as rural people have to decide, like, what what do we want? Uh, so far, we've decided that this is the system that we want. And so this is the system we're getting. I don't I don't know. Maybe AI can help offset some of that, at least environmentally. We can cover acres up environmentally, but socially, you know, we're going to need more people in rural places if we like care about our social fabric of rural spaces, which is really what I care most about. So I think we can get there uh, if we really decide that we want to. But unfortunately, I think the trends will continue and we will barely be able to get every other acre uh, planted to cover crops. 
Well, I hope we beat it. I hope we beat that. So we'll, we'll, yeah. That. <laughs> well, anything else, uh, shout out, uh, that you want to make while we're here together, definitely go to the website, um, to check things out. What else does everybody need to know while we're together? Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we had during COVID, we had to figure out how to do stuff really good online. So I think we stepped up our game there and uh, we're able to deliver content to folks who aren't in Iowa and, you know, the central corn belt. And hopefully our content can be useful to farmers out in and outside of Iowa. So I would encourage folks to visit our website, you know, jump onto one of our webinars. You know, we even have like these Thursday night winter meetings over webinar where, you know, 40 farmers will get together and just sort of BS about planter setups or fertilizer rates for the spring or like what people are curious about and trying to do. And that was really fun. But, you know, our in-person stuff is obviously the best. Um, so check out an event, try to come to a field day or a small meeting. We have catching ups this year, which are sort of smaller, intimate gatherings uh, where we get people together. So come to something with PFI. I hope to see everybody soon. That's awesome. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for you, your entire team and staff of uh, what you do to connect farmers, to share and learn from each other, and really the huge impact that you're making on soil health, not just in Iowa, but really nationwide and around the world. It's a fantastic organization. I hope everyone will check out their website and, and learn something that they didn't know before. So thanks for your time today, Sarah. Thanks so much. What a great conversation. And not only that, but you just found out that you've got access to PFI's research and events and so many other resources at the tip of your fingers. Check out the podcast notes for the link to PFI and all of those resources. And oh yeah, did you catch how it's hard to be a prophet in your own land? Well, don't give up trying to adopt these changes because there are a lot of great folks that want to help you. As Sarah said, test and noodle on these ideas and practices. And if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. There's a whole lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.